Well, good evening to all of you, and and I too want to express from my heart how much I really appreciate those who are visiting here. There are Christians who have driven an hour or more left late this afternoon in order to come here, and others have come who are unfamiliar with the kind of things that happen in a building like this. And to visitors, one and all, uh, it's such a wonderful thing uh, to meet you and to be with you and to be able to do these kinds of things together, to sing to God and to pray and to study the Bible. Um, And just as we prayed just a moment ago, uh, may we be better, stronger, closer people to God when we leave than we were when we came tonight. I know a lot of you have had busy days. Students uh, worked hard in school. Uh, you've worked at your jobs and get in late and deal with all the traffic and, and you make your plans to, to come and be here to worship God. I respect you and your priorities so very, very much. This series of lessons uh, is one that I'm calling, Okay, God, I've Got Questions. And it is an attempt to listen to what people who are outside of God at these challenging times, they might be looking at God and looking at the Bible and wondering, maybe is there something here? Maybe there's something I should be thinking about? I don't know. But I've got a lot of questions about all this stuff about God. I want to hear what they're saying and then to let God answer those questions. And so from that approach to things, this series of lessons has come. And, okay, God, I've got questions. And and uh, tonight we want to talk about one of those. And we'll just talk about in the midst of all this craziness that's in the world around us, these are strange times that we're living in. They are fast-changing times. And, uh, okay, so what am I supposed to see here, God? What, what am, what am I, how am I supposed to make sense out of this? What's going on here? That's what I want to talk about tonight. And then tomorrow night, where's all this going? What's at the end of all of this? And then Wednesday night, the Lord willing, the last uh, lesson I'll be able to preach while here will, will be a lesson on, okay, I see it now, but is there any hope? Is there a light at the end of this tunnel? And we'll, we'll let, my job is very simple. A, a preacher's job is always pretty simple. A preacher's supposed to get out of the way and let God speak. You're not here to listen to me. You're here to learn from God, and so am I. And so my job is to give a voice to this, but basically to get out of the way. And God answers our questions. He always does. And he certainly answers these important questions. So my job is to let him speak and otherwise get out of the way. So I'll I'll try to do that. And I look forward to talking more about these subjects. If you have any questions or disagreements, I really look forward to a future conversation on all of these things. So just know I'm very sincere about that. Well, let me start tonight by asking you a question. If you're a football fan, you may, and from Southern California, you may know the answer to this question. But nobody in the eastern part of the United States that I've talked to about this knows the answer to this question. 
I want to take you back to January the 1st, 1942. January the 1st, 1942. Do you know where the Rose Bowl was played that year? Normally, the answer would, of course, be Pasadena, California, where it's always played. And so you might think, well, okay, there must be something strange about that year because Phil's asking about it. And sure enough, January 1st, 1942, Oregon State played Duke University. And that game was less than four weeks after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, in which 2,403 Americans were killed on a Sunday morning surprise attack that rapidly brought the United States into World War II. And during the six years of World War II, there were an estimated 35 to 60 million people killed around the world. Imagine for six years learning that about 10 million people were killed in World War II. And that's, that was the time. That's what was happening at the time. Well, back to January 1st, 1942. At every level of our government and military and our society, there was the firm conviction that the Japanese were planning a land invasion of the United States and they would come ashore in California. And the certainty of all of that was so strong that on January 1st, 1942, for the very first time in Rose Bowl history, they moved the Rose Bowl to Durham, North Carolina. Because they were afraid. Everyone was afraid of the Japanese invasion of the United States. Oregon State beat Duke 20-16. to 16, Which makes not important at all. I just thought it was an interesting summary to that story. Oregon State beat Duke University. Well, there's something else. There's a lot of things happened in 1942, but I, I did not have time to check. But I, I think there might be in the songbooks that you all use a song that's called with the title, Jesus is Coming Soon. Jesus is Coming Soon. Morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. And the chorus is, troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear. Freedoms we all hold dear, now is at stake. Anybody here familiar with that song? Look at the bottom of that page to see when that song was written. It was written later that very same year, 1942. And I say, I say all of this to leave you with this kind of an aside. Imagine what it must have been like to live in the United States at a time like that. Fear.
fearing an imminent invasion of our country, surprise attack of, on Pearl Harbor, and the entrance into World War II, with all the emerging stories of horror and attack and destruction coming across the news in various ways every day. Imagine living in a time like this. And it is understandable, it is understandable that in that climate, many religious people would reach the conclusion that all of this is leading to only one thing. Jesus must be coming soon. The end is here, or the end is at hand. Now, the songbook that we sing from in Newcastle, Indiana, has removed that particular song. It's not included in the songbooks that we use. And and with maybe some reflection, I'm not opposed to singing that song, but it does reflect a very specific national feeling that arose from a very specific set of historic circumstances in our country. One other, one other, bit, of, one other bit of news about all that. The Rose Bowl was moved one other time in history. And you might imagine it must have been some momentous occasion that caused the Rose Bowl to be moved because it, it was once upon a time in 1942. And sure enough, on January 1st, 2021, in the midst of COVID, the Rose Bowl was played in Arlington, Texas. So, when I ask, when I say, when we all feel that these we're living in difficult times, it is things like that that might take us back to maybe one other time where the, where the world was in such upheaval. But it does remind us, it does remind us that that these kind of times have happened before. And in all honesty, uh, I'm not sure COVID can match the horrors of World War II. But regardless, it, 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 a virus shook and changed the world and infected all of our lives. About that, there can be no doubt. So what are we supposed to see here? If we could have an opportunity to talk with God for a moment and, and seek, seek His perspective on all of this. Because getting perspective is a very difficult thing. I mean, we're so close. We're not really sure what we're supposed to see or what we're supposed to make out of all of this. So if we had the opportunity to talk to God... And, 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 and ask him, what are we supposed to see? How are we supposed to respond to all of this? What are we to take from all of this? Please give us balance. Please give us a solid rock on which to stand. What would God say to us? And I, wanna, I want to say that those kinds of questions and these kinds of circumstances... Oh, they have happened many times before. And God addresses them directly in the Bible on more than one occasion. 
And there is a book in the Bible that is dedicated to bringing clarity to the kinds of questions and uneasiness and confusion that times like this bring. That book is the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'd like to ask you if to uh, please open your Old Testaments to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And let's hear what God has to say and appreciate, oh, how, how valuable, what, a, what great blessing it is to hear His words like those found in Ecclesiastes and make application at our time. What a great blessing. I want to tell you that before I'm finished, I'm just going to make two points tonight. Okay, God, I've got quit. What are we supposed to see here? The first will come from the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll hear, we'll hear what God says to answer that question. What are, we, what are we supposed to see here? The second comes from Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6. So we're going to look at those two passages, those two parts of the Bible, and we'll hear what God has to say, and I hope we will understand what, what God says we're supposed to see at a time like this and that what God says is crystal clear and that it makes all the difference in the world to us how we're going to live our lives in shaky times like these or whatever other shaky times might come in your life and mine. I hope tonight that as we hear what God has to say, be the kinds of things that will make a difference for the rest of our lives as we go forward looking at this world through the eyes of the God who created it. Okay, well, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, is, uh, as you can see from the first verse, and the later references to Solomon was a book that was penned by Solomon, the son of David, who was king over Israel. And he had, as, his, uh, as he was becoming king, on the early stages of his ki- uh, being a king, he was given an opportunity from God it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3, and the chapters that follow kind of elaborate on this. But, but God gave Solomon a remarkable opportunity. He said, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now just think about that for a moment. Wow. God... Gave that kind of invitation. Ask from me whatever you want. Read 1 Kings chapter 3. I've made note of verse 5, but you can read the verses all around there and, and you, can, you can see how this unfolded. So Solomon responded to that invitation and he knew that he was a young man lacking in wisdom but facing the responsibility of being a king over the nation of Israel, and he asked God for wisdom to rule over these people. And true to God's promise, he gave Solomon wisdom. 
But just like God does everything, He gives abundantly. And Solomon was given wisdom that was unparalleled in all of human history. Let me say that again. Unparalleled wisdom and insight. And because he didn't ask for money or a long life, God gave him what he did not ask for. And the Bible records the fabulous wealth that was given to Solomon. I'll talk about that more here in just a moment. And so, from the position of being king, was added unparalleled wisdom that was able to operate within unparalleled wealth. And Solomon experimented with what is the value of all of this? I mean, how important is this? The book of Ecclesiastes deals with a realm, with with a, a, a place where we live that he calls under the sun. And so... Solomon explored every aspect of what is valuable, what is the real worth, how much value is all this money, how reliable is all of this. And he explored every aspect of life under the sun with this unparalleled wisdom and the advantages of being a wealthy king. And then as he explored all of this world, this life under the sun... He wrote the findings. He wrote Ecclesiastes is the result. Here's, here's what it's like. And he tells the story. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and follow with me as I read from verse 1 down to the end of verse number 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along on its circular courses. The wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing Nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this, it's new. Already it has existed for ages. 
which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I'll stop at the end of verse number 11. What Solomon does for us, or what God does for us, is to lay bare this world. And let us see what really is here. Now, most of the time, at least in, in my lifetime, it seemed, most of the time, what this world really is, is hidden beneath a pretty thick cover of pleasure and wealth and just glitter and distractions and silly, worthless stuff. But there's a lot of it and a lot of talk about it and a lot of people doing it. And it's just really hard to see what really is going on here. But, but, but the COVID years, or whatever is we call the ones that follow, brought us to a little bit different place. Because for one brief moment in history, the curtains pulled back on this world. And we're allowed to say, well, how reliable is this world? How strong and how true and how reliable is this world? I mean, if in just a few short days, a microscopic virus can bring down economies, cause people to lose their jobs and their retirement and schools closed and churches closed and everything. How strong is this world if that's all it takes to bring everything to a screeching halt? How strong is it? What's really this made of anyway? It reminds me of... Uh, a family that has a big tree growing in their backyard. And toward the end of the year, they get the children together and they, they talk to them and say, when the springtime comes, we're going to hang a big rope swing in that tree for you all and you can play on the swing all summer long. And the children are so excited and they can hardly wait for springtime to come. But during the wintertime, a strong storm comes through, the winds blow very strong, and the tree falls over. The wind knocks the tree over, and as it falls, it reveals that inside that tree, it was rotten. There's nothing living there at all, it's just barely standing up. And how fortunate that family was. To not entrust the safety of their children to a rotten tree. It looks like it's good on the outside, but the truth of the matter is it's dead on the inside. Solomon says in verse number 2, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There is nothing here. There is nothing here. The sun comes up and the sun comes down. And the winds blow from the north and they swirl around and blow to the south. And the rains fall and runs into the ocean. But the oceans aren't full and the water returns back to the rivers. And there is this, there is this 
endless cycle that doesn't accomplish anything. And you work hard and you imagine you've created something that's new and you look at it a little more closely and say, it is just a different version of what's existed long ago. There's nothing new here. So what is what are we supposed to see here? You want your investments in a world like this, full of vanity and full of emptiness, full of promises, but it's dead on the inside. You want, you want to trust your livelihood and your future and be invested in this world? There's nothing here. And Solomon begins his book, these first 11 verses are just his beginning. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But then, as the book goes on, beginning with verse 12 of chapter 1 and going through chapter 2, Solomon tries to be an exception to the rule. Yes, life, the world's a broken place. It's full of disappointments. It's just repetition and nothing's really changing and nothing really is accomplished. It's just, this is the way it is here. And Solomon says, but I'm going to change that. And I think there are a lot of people who are alive today who are living like they're going to do that as well. That yeah, things aren't, but I'm, I can get to figure this out. As soon as I get my degree, as soon as I get my job, as soon as I win the lottery, as soon as I marry this woman or I marry this man, as soon as these pieces of the puzzle come together and they're just right, I'm going to find fulfillment. I am going to be satisfied. I am going to be happy. My dad didn't, wasn't able to do it, and you might not be able to do it, but I want to tell you I'm going to be able to do it. And so they run out into this broken world and with the resolve that they're going to make it work. And I want to tell you, I want to say what God has said, what God said a thousand years before Jesus was born. It has been tried before. And you're embarking on a journey of vanity. You'll waste your life, you'll waste your energy on dreams that will fall flat. You are investing in that which is broken. Okay, so let's, let's hear what Solomon did. He had the wisdom, he was king, he had plenty of money, and that's not all he had. Let's see what, what happened for him. So verse 12, I, the preacher have been uh, been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I set my mind. Here's what I'm going to do. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Verse 1 of chapter 2. 
I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Verse 11, Thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all, and behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. He tried and achieved in this world. Dreams beyond what anybody else could possibly ever achieve. Everything that his eye, his eyes desired, that's what he brought to himself. If he just saw it and wanted it, he got it. And the list is quite impressive. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines with whom he could have children, but they wouldn't be entitled to inheritance and things like that. 700 wives and 300 concubines. His average income from gold alone was over one and a third billion dollars. Silver was everywhere. It was so common it was hardly of any value at all. Silver was everywhere. Whatever he wanted, he got it. He fulfilled the dream that people in every generation had times a thousand. Imagine the people you, you know, kids you go to school with, 
who hope to land a real good job, get the big salary, or win the lottery, and all these things, and, and hopes that just around the next corner, things are going to work for them, and when they have all the things that they hope to get, then their life is going to be happy. Okay, I absolutely understand that. I, I, I feel the lure of that more strongly myself than I care to admit. But the book of Ecclesiastes helps us to see what we're supposed to see in this world. And that is a vain effort. Even if your dreams came true at some level far below Solomon's, the conclusion's the same. It's vain. There's nothing here. It's a worthless waste of your time and energy. There is no satisfaction found here under the sun. There is no fulfillment. You'll, you'll never be satisfied by amassing to yourself more of what this world has to offer. It's just not ever going to work. What it is, is vanity of vanities. It is all vanity. The, the word vanity is the word just describes emptiness. And I, I, I have for myself the, the perfect image in my life experience I know what vanity is. And here's what it means. Here, here's emptiness for me. When I was a little boy, my, my grandparents lived about an hour from where we lived. And it seemed most every weekend we would drive down to see some, some of my grandparents. And as we would go down the road, I would have a seat by the window. Window rolled down. And I would put my hand out of the car and I would surf in the wind with my hand. Okay, yes, uh, people know what I'm talking about. All right, that's fun. Little boy can do that. And then sometimes I would do this. I would turn my hand like this and cup, cup my hand against the wind. You know what happens? Whoa, it goes just like this. And I learned you don't want to put a baseball in your hand outside the window. That's not a good thing. I lost a good baseball that way. But it was surfing the wind. So imagine, imagine that scene for just a moment. And then imagine a little boy who feels there is something out there. He's surfing like this. The wind's blowing. He knows there's something out there. And he decides, I want to see what that is. And so he grabs it. A whole handful of it. And he brings it back in. And he opens his hand. He's got nothing. There's nothing there. I thought there was. I was convinced something significant was out there. And when I grabbed for it and I brought it in to see what it's really, what its real worth was, I discovered there's nothing there. That's what vanity is. That's what this is all about. That's the message that God has for. There's nothing here. It's been tried. Solomon's been down this path. And the truth is. So many millions have pursued their own lower version of the same journey to the same end. And if you were to amass a pile of all the vain things that have ever existed, you can imagine doing that. All, you, this thing is empty, this thing is worthless, this thing is vain, and you could pile all of them together. All of the vain things that ever existed. Solomon says 
that there is something that is more vain than all vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And that is this this person who would hope for fulfillment and satisfaction in this world and invest their life in something that's broken and never was empowered to provide what we need to start with. Never had that ability at all. But someone who trusts that that, that, that somehow will work for them is the vanity that is the most vain of all vanities. Someone has lost their life pursuing what is empty and worthless. Now before I leave the book of Ecclesiastes, or maybe talk this briefly about what happens the rest of the book, there are a lot of, there are some people who believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is just a pessimistic view of life. And they think that Solomon was just a grumpy old man who wrote this book because life was disappointing to him. And he'd failed, he made a lot of mistakes, and as a grumpy old man, he looked back on his life and he wrote a very depressing book about life and called it Ecclesiastes. There are people who kind of think that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. And some people read the book of Ecclesiastes and they think, oh, this is a hard read because it's, it's very depressing. And I think there are people who want to believe that about Solomon and want to believe that about the book of Ecclesiastes. Because if, they, if that is true, if it's just a grumpy old man who woke up on the wrong side of the bed, then you, what do you do with somebody who wrote like that? You just discard, dis, disregard what they said. It, you, know, he just, you don't take that very seriously. And I think there are a lot of people who don't want to take what Ecclesiastes has to say very seriously. It gets, it gets down... What's alive or dead on the inside of this world? And it is a hollow tree. It's dead on the inside. And it would be a tragedy to entrust what is valuable to the strength of a dead tree. It would be a tragedy of all tragedies. Don't do that. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And I've tried it, Solomon said. I went way beyond what your wildest dreams would ever allow you to go. And I'll tell you what's at the end of this. And there's nothing there. So, in in my conclusion to this first of these two points about I want to make. If we were to say, in the midst of all this change and unsettledness and wow, what's going on here and I don't really know which way is up and it's all very confusing to me. If we were to say, God, what am I supposed to see here? We could hear God say, this is a broken place. It always has been. You don't want to put your eggs in this basket. You don't want to 
trust. You're not going to find fulfillment and purpose and happiness in the things of this world. It's a broken place. That's what you're supposed to see. If we are allowed to look at this world and see it like God sees it, that's the conclusion. And in these moments where the the vulnerability of this world and the emptiness and the brokenness of of this world are, are revealed to us, we get to see in our own way what has been long ago revealed in the Bible. There's nothing here. Don't waste your life in the vain attempt of trying to find meaning here. It's not possible. This world was never designed for that. And it is a vain effort to... Hope for that which will never occur. So, that's that's the first thing that God would say to us. Now, the the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes is, oh, it, it, it is a revelation of the deep, dark secrets that this world wants hidden. It, it's a mess. This world's a mess. All kind of disappointments, things don't go right here. It's unpredictable, it's unreliable. And over and over, from chapter 3 on to the end of the book, these deep, dark secrets of this world are exposed. And the book concludes in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, by saying these last words. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep His commandments. That is what fits every person. Okay. The the second thing that God would say at a time like this can be found in the book of Ephesians. And so I'd like to ask if you would to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to start reading in just a moment at verse number 10. The, The book of Ephesians is a book that explains the eternal plan that God had in place and revealed, unfolded to the benefit of mankind in the person of Jesus Christ. And then after explaining this eternal plan for mankind, beginning in chapter 4 and going to the end of the book, is a description of the kind of life that we are to live here on earth under the sun that is in keeping with God's eternal plan. So, the question fits, the the question we're asking tonight leads us appropriately to Ephesians chapter 6. Okay, God, what am I supposed to see here? How am I supposed to live my life then? I'm, I'm, I'm living under the sun. I'll be here for maybe 70 years, maybe 80 years. Uh, or less, or more. I'll be here about that. What am I supposed to do here then? I read, I understand Ecclesiastes, so what, what am I supposed to see here? And God answers that question. And if you'll follow with me, I'll read starting with verse number 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So I want you I want you to look with me kind of carefully at verse number twelve. So here we are underneath this we're living on our this life under the sun. What is our struggle? And and, and who is our enemy? Who, who is our opponent? Who's the bad guy that we recognize and contend with during our life under the sun? Be careful, or, or first of all, be honest. Oh, what things get your blood boiling? In your life, and in conversations with others, the things you read and see... What things get your blood boiling? What things wake you up in the middle of the night? Maybe you want to write. Maybe you want to pace. Maybe you want to yell. What are those things? Do you think the biggest deal facing us is who wins the next presidential election? Is it climate change? Is it liberalism, white nationalism? Is it the gun lobby? Is it the threat of foreign influence in our, in our economy? Do you worry about the power grid and what's going to happen? To, are, you, are you engaged with... I don't know the right... I don't mean this in the wrong way, but the term is conspiracy theories. Are you someone who is immersed all the time in the computer reading about what most of the world doesn't really know, but, but you're getting access to it, and you're kind of able to learn news that, that you think is going to tell you what's happening next, and you, can, and you can hardly pull yourself away from it? I, 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 want, I, I want us to be honest. What... what in our lives, what do our lives reveal that we really regard as the big deals to us? And then if we're able to honestly answer that question, look again at verse number 12. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not like that. It's not, not a person, not a cause, not an issue, not a, an election of the Supreme Court. Not, 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 uh, our, our, our enemy is not flesh and blood. Why does the Holy Spirit have to say that? And then follow that up by saying, our enemy is a spiritual enemy. Why does he have to say that? Because he knows that for all of us the temptation is very great to be focused on the wrong enemy and to give our time and our attention as though there's something like those kinds of things I mentioned ago, that those are the kinds of things that really ought to work, get us worked up, get us really focused upon, that those are the important things in life. And again, we're seeing the wrong thing. That's not the enemy at all. Well, they can dis- distract us. They can get us giving our time and our energy and losing our sleep to all the wrong things while the real enemy, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places are sneaking in the back door. Something like that happened once before. And the story is told in the book of Judges, chapter 20. And uh, on that occasion, the tribe of Benjamin had committed great evils. And they occupied the city of Gibeah. And the other Israelite armies were marching against the city of Gibeah to destroy it. But for two days, the army of the Israelites were defeated. And they lost thousands of men in the course of two days of effort to attack the city of Gibeah. And so on the third day, the strategy changed. And they took part of their army and they hid them over off the side. And they used the other part of their army to attack the city of Gibeah for a third day, and it looked very much like the mistakes they had made the first two days. And sure enough, the army of Gibeah thought, there's the bad guys, let's get them again and finish them off. So they opened the gates of the city, and out went the Benjamin army against their brethren. And the attacking army turned and ran away, and the armies from inside the city pursued them. Judges chapter 20 tells the story. And when they were far enough from the city, the army, the portion of the army that was hiding, went in and walked right in the gates of the city and burned the city down. And when the army from that city turned and saw the smoke coming up from the city, they saw they they knew it, it was it was over. And sure enough, the armies converged, and the warriors from the city of Gibeah were defeated. They thought they knew who the enemy was. And they took off after the wrong enemy. The true enemy they ought to have been worried about was one hiding over here. And while they were chasing the wrong enemy... Destruction came. And it can happen like that for us. So what does God want us to see in this messed up crazy time? He wants us to see the right enemy. 
we must not let ourselves get distracted, get upset, lose sleep, get, get our minds and our emotions immersed in the wrong things. We must not let that happen. There is a spiritual battle going on. And the forces of evil want to drive back the forces of God. His truth, convictions about truth, His people, He wants to push them back. And there's a battle going on between what's true and right from God and the kinds of things that are revealed in the Bible and the forces, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places that are aligned against them. And that's the enemy that we must see. And if we see that, we'll, we will armor up appropriately. And the armor that we need is not a computer, not a cause, not a rally, not money to support some project. What we need is described beginning with verse number 13, or verse number 14. We need the armor in which we hold to sacred truth from God with the resultant rightness of character, the peace that God provides, trust in Him and His promises and who God is. We trust Him. Deliverance from sin and the Word of God. And for these things to be the armor we take up, that's exactly what we need to defeat the enemy. So if our focus is on some other things than the truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the word of God, we will be defeated because we're focused on the wrong enemy. We're focused on the wrong enemy. Imagine the loss, imagine the loss that will come when the screamers of this world continue to distract us and continue to convince us that we need to listen and worry about what they're screaming about. Imagine what happens if they win. If they convince us that that, that, that they'll point us to the enemy that we really ought to be worried about. Imagine where that's going to take people. The loss is an unimaginable one. And it's a loss that will come to people who are distracted because they are not properly equipped for the battle that is at hand. They do not see the real enemy and he is coming in the back door and he will destroy. So, God, at these, these confusing times, what am I supposed to see? The book of Ecclesiastes tells us we're to see what this world really is. And it is a broken place. It doesn't deserve your trust. It doesn't deserve your investment. It's a broken place. And you may try to be the exception to that rule if you want to, but it, here's where that's going to take you. Be, it, what a disappointing life that will result in. 
And it won't work. It's been tried before. And secondly, God wants us to see what the real, what's really going on here. And it's an age-old battle of evil against what's true and right. And God wants us in that battle, focused on the correct enemy, and armored up for success in that battle, and He tells us exactly how that's done. What a refreshing, what a, what a refreshing way to see this world and see this battle and our place in it. God wants us to see a broken world, undeserving of our trust, and a world threatened by the spiritual forces of evil. And because of God's teaching in the Bible, all of this is exposed. The nakedness of this world is evident to all. And God directs us to the proper response. Hear Him, obey Him, and armor up for a battle against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So tomorrow, the Lord willing, I want to talk about, okay, I want to just build on the lesson tonight. Okay, where's all this going? Where's this roller coaster going to end? Where's all this going? We'll talk about that, the Lord willing, tomorrow night. I hope you can come back and join us for that. But for right now, I hope you'll want, I hope you'll see what a, a, what a wonderful eye-opening thing it is to look at this world like the one who created it wants us to see it. And to stand with Him for what's, what's right and what is enduring. To make a difference in this world for good. Not caught up in all the clutter and all the emotional roller coaster that goes with it. Not at all. To stand firm on the rock that he provides. If you've never become a Christian, the invitation really is to become a Christian. To come to Christ. To listen to him. Learn from him. Let him change. Let him turn your life around where you can confess with your mouth what you believe with your heart. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, that's where you need to start. And with that kind of confession, your sins need to be taken away. That's made possible by the Savior who takes that sin away when someone is baptized into Christ. They have their burial, their death takes place. They're raised up to walk a new life. That's for you too. And your sins are washed away by a loving God and a gracious Savior. And you enter into a family that belongs to God. And you look at this world like He trains you to look at it. And you charge out into this world as a soldier that now belongs to Christ. Fighting the real enemy out there and helping others see Him too. If you've not yet become a Christian, He invites you to that kind of life-changing and eternally beneficial life. We'd like to help you begin that journey tonight. If you've become a Christian and it's not, you're not where you ought to be, you're not where you ought to be before God. We hope you'll want to change that and, and come before a loving Savior who will forgive you and welcome you back home. If we can help in any way, uh, we hope you'll let us know how we can do that while we stand together to sing this invitational song.